0: Wow, the power of the cross. Isn't that an amazing thing to think about? Oh, come on, I should hear a few amens from that. Yeah. Amen? All right. The power of the cross. And, you know, until we understand the depth and the, of, of our sin, we'll never really appreciate the depth of forgiveness. You know that? Until we really understand, you know, what, why Christ had to die, why the sacrifice had to be what it was, then we'll never really understand. You know, sin is a messy thing, isn't it? You know, it, and how many have been saved for at least two decades? Okay, wow, a lot of people have been saved for at least two decades. So you guys are all sinless by now, right? <laughs> no, of course not, right? Because sin is a messy thing. It is very difficult. And no matter who you look to as a saint, you'll find out that really they're a sinner, Right? And, uh, and, and sin is messy. In fact, if you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, think about this for just a moment. In the Garden of Eden, they were without sin at the beginning. There was no sin yet. And then God gave them a choice, and they chose to allow sin into their lives. What does Romans, 1, or Romans 5, 12 say? For as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. God saw this this matter of sin so important that he said, I'm going to take away man's immortality because they need to learn the lesson of sin. Think about that. God's saying, I'm going to take away their ability to live forever so that they learn the lesson of sin. Fortunately, there's a way to get eternal life, right? (laughs) We'll talk about that too. But God took away from mankind his ability to live forever because he thought... We can't let man go on thinking that it's okay to bring sin into the world. And so when we really grasp the depth of our sin, then we'll begin to understand and really appreciate the value of forgiveness. We're in uh, uh, Joshua chapter 7, and we're continuing our journey with Joshua, but today we're getting into the into the message of sin. We see sin. We see the yuckiness and the filth and we get into the messy part of, uh, of, of people's lives and we see into their heart and we see this sin in a very personal way. To give us a little uh, uh, introduction, to remind us where we're at in the story, uh, remember that uh, we were in the conquest phase. Now Israel has crossed the Jordan River. They're in the conquest phase. This is part two of that conquest phase with Ai. And uh, remember, at the end of the battle of Jericho, he gave them a test, and they failed that test. And so when they went against Ai, what happened? We find, uh, uh, if, we, if we look in uh, uh, verses 2 through 5 of chapter 7, we see it, it says, Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside beth on the east side of Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy out the country. So the men went up, and spied out Ai. And they returned to uh, to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Ai. Do not weary all the people there, for the people of Ai are few. So about three thousand men went up from uh, from the people, but they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about thirty-six men, for they chased them from before the gates as far as Shebarim and struck them down on the descent. Therefore, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. So when we look at the structure of Joshua, we begin with sin. It starts with sin. Just in, first, in verse 1, it talked about the children of Israel being involved in sin. It talks about Achan being involved in sin. And then what we find from there, we, we, just to review from last week, is what we just read in verses 2 through 5. We see the story about Israel's sin. Then in uh, verses 16 through 26, we see the story of Achan's sin. And right in between, we see this conversation between Joshua and God. Now, when we look at what we just read today, we find that they had the sin of self-reliance. In other words, they began to have uh, not, not so much a courage, because courage is when we put our trust in God, but they had conceit because they started putting their trust in themselves. And they thought, oh, this is a small city, we can handle this one. And they didn't ask anything of God, they didn't confront God, they didn't inquire of Him, they didn't, use, uh, they didn't take the ark with them, they didn't take everybody. Everything pointed to the fact that they thought they could handle this on their own. They, they left God out of the equation. One word to describe all of that would be conceit then last week, we began to see the conversation between Joshua and God, because finally we see Joshua where he needed to be, which is in the presence of the Lord, on his face by the, by, with the Ark of the Covenant, right? And we see that uh, there, and we talked about five temptations that we can fall into, as we oftentimes uh, do when things are not going our way. Today we're going to look at how God responded to that. We're going to see how God responded. So let's go to Joshua chapter 7, and we'll start in verse 10. Read verses 10 through 12. So the Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant which I commanded them. For they have even taken some of the accursed things, and have both stolen and deceived, and they have also put it among their own stuff. Therefore, the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs. Before their enemies, because they have become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed from among you. Wow, so God says, Joshua, get off of your face because Israel has sinned. We talked about this a little bit last week. It's really not, not rocket science that, that we see here, but this was God's reasoning. This is what God said. He said, basically, remember this God promised victory to Joshua, did he not? God, that's where we need to start. God promised him victory. In fact, if you keep a finger in chapter 7 and you look at at, uh, chapter 1, verse 5, it says, um, in verse 5 it says, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. But did someone stand against Joshua? Hmm. So does that look like a contradiction at first glance? We're quiet today. Everyone's real quiet. This is yes. This is no. All right. <laughs> yeah. But that's why we also noticed that there was one stipulation. What was the one stipulation for this blessing? The one stipulation. And I just lost my spot there again. All right. Verse eight. Uh, uh, this or verses seven and eight. Excuse me. Only be strong and very courageous, that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper. Wherever you go, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So there was a stipulation. The stipulation was you have to lean 100% on God. You have to lean on God's word. And if you lean on God's word, He was going to give you victory. And then we see this in, at play. Uh, when they came to the Jordan River, did they have faith? Did they obey? They obeyed to the detail, and that God gave them a victory. That's what chapter 3 is all about. And then we come to Jericho. Did they obey? Yes. Yes, they did. Once again, they obeyed to the detail. They relied on God, and they had another victory. And then we come to Ai, and they lost. So what does that imply? What's the therefore? Therefore, there must be sin in the camp. And God was saying, Joshua... Don't, don't stay on your face. Get up. There's something to do. There's sin in the camp, and we have to deal with it. And I cannot bless the people unless, unless we deal with this sin. And that tells us something about the doctrine of sin. Today, I just want to talk about three things, really, about the doctrine of sin that will change our lives if we understand it. It could save your life. It could save the lives of other people. Now, I don't say that too often from the pulpit. <laughs> But if you really understand these concepts, it could save, and it could even save, eternal life. And we'll talk about that in a a little bit as well. But one thing we learn from this is that sin puts us in a position where God does not bless. We have to understand the depths of of this doctrine of sin for us to appreciate salvation. So I want to make sure we understand this point very clearly, that sin puts us in a position where God does not, He cannot bless Usually when you say God cannot do something, you have to be very careful about that, right? Because can God do anything he wants? Yes, he can. But he will never want to go against his own character. So God cannot bless you if you're not in a position to be blessed. He cannot bless you for your sin. And so sin separates us from God. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this, uh, that, that creates a problem. Um, in fact just a few moments ago I asked for all the people who who have been saved for a few decades if they've known the Lord for a few decades how many of them are still sinners right? and they all raised their hands right? why? because we are all sinners and so I look at this and it's a scary scary thought we should look at the story of AI and be discouraged instead of pointing fingers at AI what should we be doing? we should be pointing fingers at ourselves it's like wait a minute if god would treat ai this way then how is he going to treat me what what do i deserve right anyone else thinking the same thing as, as i was thinking when i read this good uh, that's that's uh, that's the problem but the big question then is what is the solution and i'm glad to say that the bible has some solutions uh, for us in the in the scriptures so there's two parts to this solution and uh, I want, we want to make sure we clearly understand this. Only one of them is mentioned in Joshua 7 because Joshua 7 was written in a context but if you look at the greater context, the first one was assumed at this point and so I want to make sure we understand that point because I wouldn't want us to skip step one and go straight to step two okay the, the solution for sin really begins step one is salvation salvation And even though Joshua 7 really doesn't dive into the topic of salvation, it already has in previous chapters, right? We've talked through that. It already has in the greater context of what was going on. There is this concept of salvation. In fact, this concept uh, for the people as a whole goes all the way back, um, if you were to go all the way back to Exodus 32. We don't have to turn there this morning because it's a pretty familiar story. But do you remember, once they crossed the Red Sea, And God was ready to give his covenant of blessing to his people. And so he decided to have a little alone time with Moses. And they go up into the mountain. And God is literally carving out the Ten Commandments on two tablets. One tablet for Israel, one tablet for God, as any contract has two copies. And we see God carving out the the Ten Commandments, explaining to Moses along the way why these are a blessing. At the same time, what was Aaron doing down in the valley? You know, he was collecting all the gold. He was collecting things from everyone, their earrings and bracelets and so on. Why was he doing that? So he could fashion with a tool a golden calf. golden calf. And, and we're already told you don't worship God. In fact, the very thing God was carving said you don't worship God via images, right? It so says you don't worship other things. Aaron is already inciting the people to commit idolatry. It's, it's, it's adultery, spiritually, right? That's what he was inciting them to do. And so, uh, while this is going on, uh, uh, Moses is having this great time with the Lord and experiencing the, with the blessings that come with the law. Moses comes down from the mountain, and he sees that the, they're, they're doing horrible, horrible things. Not only were they worshiping the golden calf, but they lifted it up, and they said... Behold, this is Elohim who got us, who delivered us from Egypt. Who's Elohim? That's the word for God. Genesis one one, in the beginning, God, that's Elohim. They were taking a, a God that came out of Egypt and has the same roots as Baal. We've got to keep that in mind, too. And they lifted him up and they they, they said, Behold, Elohim, who took us up out of Egypt. So soon, sin is a messy thing, isn't it? We start giving credit to where, where credit is not due, and we don't give credit where credit is due, and we defame the name of the Lord. That's sin. That's sin. And God said that sin is so serious, I am done. I am done with them. I am going to wipe them off the face of the earth. Did you know that? I don't know if they taught that part in, the, in elementary when we learned the story. Right? But God said... I'm done with them. I am going to wipe them out. And Moses said, Lord, please have mercy on them. And, he, and we have this little face-to-face showdown between God and, and Moses. And Moses pleads on Israel's behalf. And God says, I will show my mercy, and I will give them an opportunity. But they have to go through a process to get there. And it's that process of salvation. And God draws a diagram. And you know what we call that diagram? <laughs> the tabernacle. The tabernacle. Right? He uses the tabernacle. He, draw, he uses it to give a diagram. And uh, here's a picture of, of the tabernacle. And so inside, in the very middle, covered where no one can see, what's inside there? The Holy of Holies. What does the Holy of Holies represent? It's the very presence of God. You have three articles in the Holy of Holies. You have, you have a candelabra, which represents the Holy Spirit. You have the table of showbread, which represents... Jesus Christ. And you have the Ark of the Covenant, which represents God the Father. Now, if I could throw a little commercial in there, there are a lot of people who say Trinity is, the Trinity is only mentioned in the New Testament, so it must be false. No, the Trinity is represented even as far back as Exodus 32. Amen? Uh, we, so we, we serve a triune God. So that's a little extra commercial in that I'll just throw in there, because people are attacking the, the, trini- the Trinity in uh, Christian circles today. But that represents the very very presence of God. But do we have access to it? No, you have to go through a process. In fact, the very first thing, when you walk inside the, the, the tabernacle gates, the very first object, there were two objects before you could go into the holy place. What's the first object? Anyone remember? It's, it's the altar. Right. What did they do on the altar? They offered a sacrifice for sin. They would take a lamb, a spotless lamb, mind you. They would take a lamb, and they would kill the lamb as a representation that that sin requires death. Just like in Adam and Eve's case. God blessed Adam and Eve. He put them in the garden. They sinned, and they all received a curse, and they were asked to leave the garden. Right? There had to be a sacrifice even then to cover their sin. Here we see it in a, in a, in a, on a regular basis. They repeated this so that people could see this concept that there had to be some kind of what we call now substitutionary atonement. You know what that means? Someone had to be our, take our place. Someone had to be our substitute. And uh, this was a picture of of something that would come in the future. And we all know what that is because we have hindsight, right? And uh, in fact, John uh, the Baptist noticed this before anyone else did. When he saw Jesus Christ, do you remember the first thing he said? He said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did. Now, in Joshua's day, they didn't know who Jesus was, but they knew how to trust in substitutionary atonement. Because God had already taught them that. Does that make sense? And so when we're dealing with sin, I want to make sure it's very clear that before we get into sanctification, we need to understand that sanctification, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, is something that happens after salvation. If you try to bypass salvation, it will do you no good. It's like training for a marathon that you've never registered to run in, right? Right. You can do all the training you want, and you can re- and do, do all of those things, but you can even cross the, the finish line, but if you've never registered for that race, you're not a winner, right? And it's the same thing with, with, when we deal with sin. If you are not saved, you can do everything you want to put into practice principles, even biblical principles of how to overcome sin, and you can improve somewhat over, in your life, but you will never earn salvation unless you trust in the fact that Jesus Christ paid ...for your sins himself. And you could never do it. Jesus Christ did that. And so I want us to make sure we have that theological understanding... ...when we come to the, to the next part. Because uh, uh, as we look at the next part... Uh, ...we have salvation, but then we have a process called sanctification. In fact, this was also taught in the Old Testament... ...because if you go back to the same tabernacle... ...the first uh, object was the, was the altar. What was the second object? It was the laver, exactly. We had the laver, which is where they would wash up. It represented the whole cleansing aspect, right? And we see that cleansing happening uh, in, the, in that process. And so it's important to understand um, that, that there's forgiveness of sins, but there's also cleansing of sins, and they do go together. In fact, the Bible says in uh, Philippians, it says that he who began a good work in you, salvation, will be faithful to complete it. Sanctification. He, he, he's not going to just save you from your sins and, and then leave you there to, to wallow in your sins. He's going to actually help you overcome it. One verse I love in the New Testament that covers both of these in one verse. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to do what? To forgive us of our sins. What did we call that? Salvation, right? But it doesn't stop there. And to cleanse us of of all unrighteousness. What do we call that? Sanctification. And so both, they go hand in hand. And so I want you to see that if you try to bypass salvation, then you're lost. You're lost. You can try. You might even improve in some ways, but you're still lost. And one day you'll stand before God and he'll say, I never knew you. And I don't want that to be anyone here today. So make sure you start with salvation. Also, though, if there are those who say, well, I've already been saved, so I'm just going to bypass the whole sanctification thing. And just say, well, you know, the Lord's already saved me from my sins, so I'll just kind of hang on to my sins. If that's you, then you don't understand salvation. You've never agreed with God that sin is sin. You've never confessed. Because confessed is more than just a verbal verb. It's, it's a verb. It's a belief verb. Confess means to verbalize what you believe. So if that belief, that faith isn't there, then you're lost. And so we see that both of these are very, very important. And so in Joshua 7, salvation was already taught in the context via the tabernacle process. But now we want to see what does God say about sanctification, because that's an, uh, uh, that's an important part of it as well. So let's look at verse 13 through 15 once again. Get up, sanctify the people and say, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow, because thus says the Lord God of Israel, there is an accursed thing in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought according to the tribes, and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes shall come according to families. And the family which the Lord takes shall come by households, and the households which the Lord takes shall come man by man. Then it shall be that he who is taken with the cursed thing shall be burned with fire. He and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done a disgraceful thing in Israel. Wow. Strong words? Does it seem like a strong punishment to you? I don't know about you, but it does, it seems that way to me. In fact, there's a question that comes to my mind, and, and, I, and I, I asked when I'm studying the, this text, why did God deal so severely with one man, Achan, when all of Israel had sinned? Remember that? It wasn't just one man who sinned. Now, he may have been the worst of the offenders or something, but, but why, was God, why did God deal so severely with just one man while, in a sense, kind of letting it go for, for everybody else? Um, and my mind went back to my days at Baptist Park High School—not the days when I was a, a student at Baptist Park High School, but back in the days when I actually was a teacher at Baptist Park High School. I had the opportunity to go back and teach for a year uh, at my at the school where I where I went. And uh, and so while I was taking seminary courses, I I took or I would teach courses during part of the day and take courses during part of the day. You can do that when you're single, right? So. That's what I was doing. And, and a, a typical day, I had, a, a, you know, my classroom full of angels. And, uh, okay, I can't even say that with a straight face, but uh, I had a classroom. <laughs> I'll just put it there. And, but they were behaving in typical normal day. And, and I taught uh, history, Bible, and phys ed. I was teaching my history class one day. And, uh, and everyone was behaving just on a nor- like a normal class when the PA system announced that they needed to talk to me in the office for a few minutes. And I knew what it was about, and so I thought, okay, this will take about five minutes. So I just said to the class, I said, a couple quick ground rules, I'll be back in five minutes. And I said, number one, you have to stay in your seats. Okay, just stay in your seats. Whatever you do, stay in your seats. I also knew that my classroom was right next to, I'll just call her Mrs. S. Um, because I, I don't want to embarrass um, uh, Mrs. Sherland. But I'll just... Um, <laughs> But also, uh, Miss S. had her classroom right next to me. And I, she was my teacher when I was a student. And now we were coworkers. And she was very strict. And, and so I just said, be quiet enough that not even Mrs. Sherlin can hear you guys talking. All right? So if you talk, you have to whisper. But, but if Mrs. Sherlin hears you, then you're in trouble. That was, my, that was where I drew the line. I couldn't think of anything better at the time. So then I ran, I ran uh, to the office, took care of whatever I needed to take care of in the office. And I came back, and the class didn't look like this. You know, that, that's not what I came back to. This is what I left. Um, what I came back to was a little bit more like this. Right? And I'm not like Kids had, had taken paper out of their notebooks and crumpled up, and they started like a little snowball fight, and they're going back and forth, and, and people were talking. But I actually knew that before I even entered the room, because as soon as I came around the hallway, and I, I, I saw where down the hallway to the right was my classroom, you know what I saw first? Mrs. Sherlin. oops, oh, Mrs. S. Standing there. And, uh, and she, was, she was like this, tapping her foot, just with that, that look in her face. You know what I'm talking about. Have we, have we all had to, Mrs. Sherlins in our own life? All right, so you know what the look is. And she was giving me that look like, you know, they're in trouble. And then I, I didn't get but halfway down the hallway, and I could hear the sounds I came in, and, and multiple people were out of their seats having conversations in different places. And, and uh, I remember seeing one one kid, I'll call him uh, uh, T. Barton. Right? Oh, that's too obvious. Timmy B., we'll say. And, um, and so... So he, he, was, he was standing on his chair, and apparently he had put something in the roof somehow. He's a short kid. I don't know exactly how he did it. But he had something hanging from the roof, and he was on the chair looking up, and he's trying to jump up there to knock it off, right? Which reminds me of what I said as soon as I came in the room. Knock it off! And, uh, but I came in, and there were so many people misbehaving. So I looked for one, and the first one, the most obvious one to me, was... Timmy B, right? And so I just said, Tim Barton, I just gave his name again, but Tim Barton, go to the office. You know, Now, I couldn't have sent everybody to the office. The office would have shot me, right? But I just took one person and I, and I used them as an example. I said, Tim Barton, go to the office. And then I looked at the rest of the class and I didn't say a word, but my face said, who's next, right? Who's next? And all of a sudden, what happened? Everyone quiets down. Everyone goes back to their seats. They're straightening their chairs. They're picking up uh, the snowballs that were around them. And Why? Because for once they saw someone get what they deserved, and then it caused them to reflect and think, what do I deserve? I better change my behavior. Does that make sense? And so we do see a situation where, where Israel is misbehaving. Yeah, they were putting their trust in themselves instead of putting their trust in God. And so God takes one person and says, I'm going to make an example out of this person so that everyone can see. And you know what? We're going to find this out in the next few weeks. It changed everything. They do go back. They do attack AI. But they have a very different way of going about it. Why? Because they learned from the situation by looking at, at AI. And, and you know what? Timmy Barton became Aiken, right? He became Aiken. But the class was Israel, if we look at this as an analogy. So the answer really is is because, you know, almost everyone was guilty at some level, but they all needed to sanctify themselves. They all needed to sanctify themselves. And that's why God didn't just say, go to Achan and tell Achan that he needs to sanctify himself and then everything's going to be fine for everybody. He didn't do that. He said, tell Israel that they need to sanctify themselves. They need to change but you know what? It's, it's interesting to me that even in God's act of justice, even in his act of justice, we see his mercy. I mean, think about it for a moment. How many opportunities uh, did God give to Achan? I mean, when we, just, when we think about that, it, it blows my mind. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But God, give, God gave the people of Israel, what I'm just going to say, three tools of sanctification. Three tools for sanctification. And if we put these in practice, it could save a lot of time, a lot of trouble, maybe even some lives. But what are the three tools for sanctification? First one, we'll call it conviction. First one, conviction. Let's look at verse 13, verse A. Get up, sanctify the people, and say, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow. Let me just stop there for a moment. God gave the people of of Israel an opportunity to do what what we call uh, self-examination. Allowing the conviction of the Holy Spirit to say, you know what, what you did was wrong. He gave them a day, an entire day, where he said, sanctify yourselves. During that time that they would sanctify themselves, they would rid themselves of a lot of the distractions that are going on in their life. They would do the sacrifices and they would spend the day reflecting on their own behaviors. So that's what God asked them to do. Have a time of self-examination. You know what? That's a gift when you think about it. The, the, that God has given us opportunities to examine ourselves. Did you know he does that in the New Testament too? In fact, every time we have communion, what are we called to do? Examine ourselves. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly how frequently we have to do it. But it's a principle that he says you must repeat it. In fact, it's an ordinance. It's something that you're not even a church if you don't do it. Right? It's, it's defining ordinance of the church. Uh, and uh, when Paul spoke of the, uh, of, of the ordinance of communion, or the Lord's Supper, we oftentimes call it, this is what he said in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 11. He says, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord is, uh, or in an unworthy manner, will be guilty of the blood or the body and blood of the, of the Lord. But, what does he say? Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So before you participate in communion, what should you be doing? Examining yourself. We allow time, whenever we do uh, communion, we allow time for us to be quiet, introspectively looking in our own lives and examining ourselves. Verse 29 goes on to say, For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. In other words, he doesn't get the big picture. He doesn't understand how God's body works, and so he's eating judgment upon himself. Verse 30, For this reason many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. When he, this is the word for sleep that Jesus said when someone died, right? So many are asleep. That's, Paul is saying... There are people who are weak in the church There are people who are sick in the church And there might even be people dying in the church Why? Because not everyone is examining themselves And their sin in the camp We talked about this a couple weeks ago Can one man's sin have a negative effect In other people's lives? Yes, it can Yes, it can It goes on to say Verse 31 For if we would judge ourselves We would not be judged Stop there for a moment now that's a blessing. Think about that. If we would be willing to judge ourselves, then we would not be judged. I remember as a counselor one time uh, dealing with a, a, a camper where, by the time I even met him, his his uh, his children's pastor and his bus driver and a few of the adults on the bus came to me to warn me about him. Have you ever had that happen? <laughs> and, and so, and I talked to him. And the first time he had a, a misbehaving problem, I said, "You know what? I'll tell you. what, I'm going to let you choose your own punishment." And he's like, "What?" <laughs> You can choose your own punishment. If it doesn't work, though, then I'll choose the next one. And, uh, and, and, and uh, he chose a much harsher punishment. To make a long story short, it worked. And, uh, and he had a great week. Think about that. If we judge ourselves, we would not be judged. Think about that. If we would, uh, would have this time of let, allowing God to convict us, examine ourselves, have the attitude of David when he said, search me and know my heart, try me and know my thoughts. If we would have that... We can avoid a lot of negative things, couldn't we? Says, But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, verse 32, that we may not be condemned with the world. Here we see a couple, two more key C words. I I think the the first one there is chastened by the Lord. Think about that. We can avoid chastening. We can avoid chastisement. That's where the Lord is pursuing us because of our sin. We can avoid that if we do what? We examine ourselves. And so we can we can skip some of those later steps. And if we avoid that, if we avoid the chastisement of the Lord, what's the next C word we see in, in that verse? Condemnation. And uh, we hate to see it things go to that far. But I'll tell you what, conviction is step one, and God gave them an opportunity. He so said, Take the day, examine yourselves. And Achan could have easily at that point said, Lord, it's me. In fact, he even said, someone took the, some of the accursed things. Aiken knew that. Probably Aiken's family knew that. It does say later on he buried it in the middle of his tent, right? His family probably knew that. But they did nothing during that entire day. And in fact, someone once said, you know what Aiken's wife said when Aiken returned from stealing the, the, the accursed things? She said, oh my, Aiken back. I'm sorry, I had to throw a little humor in there because it's just getting too quiet in here. Sorry, I apologize sorry. no, but we but you know what? He had an opportunity for conviction didn't stop there. God gave him an opportunity for what we what I'll call confrontation. Look at the second half of verse thirteen it says sanctify yourselves uh for tomorrow because Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, There is an accursed thing in your midst, O Israel. Who is he directing this to? To Israel. He's directing this to Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you, that's a plural word there, you take away the accursed thing from among you. Again, we see a plural word. What's going on? God's saying, now it's time for you to sanctify yourselves as a body. You start holding each other accountable. And you start looking for what's in your midst. We don't read anything about anyone trying to do it, but God told him to do it. And that's where hey, we're saying, we had, a, we had a, a victory that we should have had in our back pocket. We lost. What's going on? That, then you go to your neighbor and say, "Hey, was it you? You know, I know I didn't steal anything. Was it you? You know, you know, was it you, Jason? Did you did you take something? You know, did you?" Was it? You know, we go around and we act. We, we hold each other accountable. It's this principle of accountability. And we were never intended to live the Christian life alone. From Genesis 1, it is not good for a man to be alone. All the way to, to the present day, we are never meant to be alone. We hold each other accountable. We have to live our lives in such a way that, that we can call each other out when there's sin. Right? I remember telling the guys uh, on staff... I mean, they're, they're, they work the closest with me. So I told them, you know what? Anytime you want, you can, you can look at my uh, laptop and look at my history if you want. Why? Because we have to have that level of accountability. They can check my finances. They can check, you know, if I'm keeping my eyes pure. They can check whatever they want, what I'm studying, where I'm spending my time. They can do whatever they want. Why? Because we have to live in a, in a community of believers where we hold each other accountable. But so many times we can come in on a Sunday morning and in a service like this, we can't hold each other accountable, can we? You can come in, you can put a smile on and you can shake hands with people and uh, you know, you, maybe 10 minutes before you got here, you were having a fight with your wife or, and maybe yelled at your kids or maybe whatever's going on in your life and you could put on the front right here, can't you? But it's harder to do that when we live in community. And we build into each other's lives. We get involved in each other's lives, and we hold each other accountable. And God was saying to the entire people of Israel, this is what you need to do. You need to sanctify yourselves, plural. Go out there, find out what's going on, confront each other, deal with sin. Amen? If we love each other, we do, we do that. And, but I think we have this feeling like, oh, well, I can't let someone else into my life, because that's going to that's gonna hurt, right? But that's not what God called us to God called us to conviction first, but he also gave us a tool of confrontation. When someone confronts you in your sin, count that a blessing. That is a blessing. If they do it in love, that's bonus. But even if they don't do it right, but it's a genuine sin, thank the Lord for it. Because this is a tool that God uses in the sanctification process. There's one more I'd like to talk about that we see here, and that's chastisement. Chastisement. Verses 14 through 15. It says, "In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought according to your tribes, and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes shall come according to families, and the family which the Lord takes shall come by household, and the households which the Lord takes shall come man by man. Then it shall be that the one who is taken uh, with the accursed things shall be burned with fire, He and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done a disgraceful thing in Israel. So we see this chastisement. And this, it's really a process of exposition of sin. God exposing sin. What does the scripture say, be sure your sin will find, find you out. out. Uh, and so God goes through this process of exposing sin. And none of us like, likes to have our sins exposed. I mean, if we had to be 100% honest, how many of us would like to be up here and allow anyone to ask us any question they want about our lives? Anyone? Any volunteers? No? Right, we don't like that. We don't like our sins to be public. But they don't necessarily have to be. But if we don't follow the first two steps and we get the chastisement, then yeah, they will become public. They do become public. Even in the midst of this, um, what do we see? We see this decreasing rate of privacy. Ignore the fact that it says condemnation there. That should say chastisement. But we see this decreasing rate of privacy. When when you are convicted and you confess that sin to the Lord, who knows about it? There's only three parties involved. You, God, and whoever you sinned against that you need to apologize to. Right? And so there's only three parties involved. It's a very private thing. Confrontation. What does that do? It adds a few more parties to the list. Right? In fact, if you, if you take the New Testament teaching on confrontation, Matthew 18 says first you go to the person one-on-one. right? But even that allows a fourth party now. You have the person who's done the sin, God, the person he sinned against, and the person who has observed the sin. Right? So you have a new party involved. But if the person repents, you've won your brother. If the person doesn't repent, what do you do according to Matthew 18? You go get two or three witnesses. Well, now you've got more witnesses. God uses witnesses sometimes to put pressure, right? And so there are a few witnesses. But if you win your brother over, if he repents, you win your brother over, and, and that's great. It's, it ends there. But if you don't, then where, where do you take it to? The church. Oh now, it's more public. And you see this decreasing rate of privacy where God is saying, "You know what? I would be, I would be glad to deal with your sin in a private man- manner if it works and then it becomes a little bit bigger <laughs> and a little bit bigger and more and more people have to get involved and 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 sin is an ugly thing, isn't it? So when we think of the doctrine of, of sin, uh, it, this passage really teaches us a lot in the way of the practical understanding of the doctrine of sin. To look at verses uh, 16 through 19 to see how how Achan responded to all of these opportunities that God had given him. So so Joshua rose early in the morning and and brought Israel by their tribes and the tribe of Judah was taken. He brought the clan of Judah and he took the family of the Tsarites and he brought the family of the Tsarites man by man and Zabdi was taken. Then he brought his household man by man and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Now Joshua said to Achan, My son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. We'll just stop there for a moment. There were so many opportunities for Achan to repent. When you think about it, first, there was just the loss of the Battle of Ai, right? That could should have been enough for him to say, well, oh, wait a minute, God promised that we should uh, that we would have victory if we don't sin. I sinned and now we lost. Do you think that's enough to at least tell him maybe he should confess his sin to the Lord? But did he? No, he didn't. Then then we have the day of sanctification where, where you can you can go and you sanctify yourselves and and he even told them what someone was guilty of. Did Achan confess that day? No, he didn't. Then the Lord said, I'm going to... And he does this in a very public way. He, says, he gets all of Israel together, and he chooses one tribe. Now, I want you to put yourself in Achan's shoes for a moment. You've stolen the devoted things. You've got them hidden in your tent. And God says, someone in here is guilty. And out of 12 tribes, he chooses yours. How would you feel? Like, uh-oh, maybe this is for real. Maybe God did see me do this, right? But it doesn't stop there. Then God chose Achan's clan, out of that tribe. Now how do you feel if you're Achan? And not only that, he then chooses God's, or out of, of that clan, Aiken's family. Like, oh man, this is getting close. Maybe he does know. Opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to stand up and say, it was me. It was me. He doesn't take it. Until, finally, God says, it's you. It's ache in. And only, only then does he confess. Only when he's completely caught does he confess. There's a Japanese proverb that says, true repentance is never too late, but late repentance is seldom true. Think about that for a second. True repentance is never too late, but late repentance is seldom true true when he had all of these opportunities to repent, to confess his sin and he waited until only he only repented of what he actually got caught for doing and God gave him all of this grace, gave him all of these times and he refused he refused to do it, what does this tell us about the doctrine of sin, we've already talked about how sin puts us in a position where God does not bless but now we see that the sooner we confess our sin, the better off we will be Just putting it in simple words. The sooner we confess our sin, the better off we will be. Imagine if the day that they lost 36 men, Achan had gone to Joshua and said, this is my fault. Even Jonah, we see Jonah confessing before he was caught. And Jonah isn't exactly the greatest hero in Scripture, right? But even he said, well, you know what? The reason this is happening is because of me, right? Imagine if Aiken had done that or anywhere along in the process if he had stood forward and said, it's me. But what what do you think kept him from doing that? Shame? That it was him? But that shame that keeps you from confession will only make the matter get worse. The sooner you confess your sin, the better off you will be. I remember when I was a, a teenager, there were... Three of us that were really good friends, and uh, uh, I remember, you know, even though we were late junior high, one of the one of the three of us decided to bring some alcohol. Uh, we had a fort in the woods, and he said, "Oh, let's let's drink." And and I remember saying, "I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that." One of those two boys, both of the other two did. One of them got caught by his parents, and confessed, he, was dealt, he dealt with it, and the other one did not get caught by his parents. And I remember at the time thinking, wow, he kind of got lucky on that one. You know, that's not how I look at it anymore. The one who got caught early in the process, he was the lucky one. Because he dealt with that sin His parents dealt with that sin He confessed that sin He, he apologized for that sin God forgave him for that sin And as we learn from the songs we sang today Those sins don't exist anymore They're gone That's, the, that's the, the beauty of the forgiveness of God Right? For the other guy He didn't get caught He continued in his sin And he's worked through he, I say through multiple marriages Because of his alcohol addiction Right? He was not lucky. Why? Because this principle is true. The sooner we deal with sin, the better off we will be. And if you let it grow, I, I remember even when we bought the house we were at, and there was a few weeks it took us to before we could buy the house where we were at, and so the, the weeds that were in there started to grow up, and I remember my dad saying, oh, you see those weeds back there? You better get them now. I'm like, but dad, I'm really busy. I'm trying to transition to new church. He says, but the sooner you get those weeds, the better it's going to be for you, and he was right, because like, I didn't take his advice but God even gave us weeds because he wanted to teach us about sin you go to Genesis 3 his punishment was a gift he taught us say, you want to learn about sin? you need to learn about sin? here I'll give you weeds you, 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 you pull enough weeds you'll know a lot about the doctrine of sin right? and so we, we see that happening and the other thing that we see is this if we refuse to deal with our sin that our sin will negatively affect other people. Let's go back just one more time to to verse 13. Really, even verse 12. I'll read 12 and 13 as well. Therefore, the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies. The children of Israel could not stand before their enemies because they have become doomed to destruction neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed thing from among you. Get up, sanctify the people, and say, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow, because thus says the Lord God of Israel, there is an accursed thing in your midst. O Israel, you cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. Your sin could naturally have an impact, negatively have an impact on other people. So what about you? I want you to just pretend for a moment that there's no one else in the room. I just want you to look introspectively today and ask a couple of questions. First, when did you trust Christ for salvation? We've talked a lot about sanctification today, but you can't bypass salvation. If you've never come to a point in your life where you've said, it's not about me, it's not about what I can earn, but I trust that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for my sins. If you've never done that, then in a few moments I'm going to give you an opportunity. I want you to come and talk to me. And we do this every week. We talk about this every week. Um, That doesn't mean that there's going to be an opportunity every week. If the Lord's working in your heart today, do it today. Because he may not be working in your heart a week from today or two weeks from today. If the Lord's working in your heart, don't walk outside this church without knowing that you have eternal life. So when did you, when did you trust in Christ for salvation? Second one. When you are alone with God, what sins does he bring to your mind? And would you be willing to confess them today? Hopefully you're spending time alone with God. If not, then then even as we pray, I, I, I pray that you would spend some time alone with God, even in this room. But say, Lord, convict me. If I'm in any sin, convict me. And see what sins does he bring to your mind. Third question How do you respond when others confront you in your sin? When others come to you, do you you immediately look for the the plank in their eye before you get the speck out of your own eye? Or do do you say, Lord, thank you for the gift of giving me someone to confront me in my sin? How do you respond? Are you willing to look introspectively then and say, Lord, use this to change me. Use this to make me a better person, to sanctify me. Are there any stubborn sins that you, of which you've refused to repent? This is what we see in Achan. Right, he he was he sinned, he stole, he wanted that money, he wanted the robe, he wanted to look nice, he wanted all those things he didn't have in the desert, and he was willing to hang on to that even to the point that opportunity after opportunity after opportunity that God gave him to repent, he said no, I'm going to hang on to these things. What are your stubborn sins? Are there things that maybe the Lord's been dealing with you over years uh, that become stubborn sins? What are, the, what are your stubborn sins? And lastly, are you willing to hang on to that sin even if it hinders God's work among his people? Think about that for a second. Are you willing to hang on to that sin knowing that it might be hindering God's work in the lives other people. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment. Right, let's stand together. No, nobody's looking around. Nobody's worried about you. And in a moment, I'm going to give you an opportunity. If the Lord is working in you in any of those areas, I want to give you an opportunity to come forward and just pray before the Lord. If you're coming because you need you need salvation or you're not sure you're on your way to heaven, then come talk to me. Come straight to me, and, and I, will, uh, I will make sure that someone shows you from God's word how you can know you have eternal life. But if the Lord is dealing with you, just come up anywhere. And I know that in Aiken's mind, I know that the fear of going in front of other people, the fear of, well, if I confess to a sin, then they're going to point fingers at me, or they're going to... I know that those fears might be some of the same fears that some of you might be feeling right now. Oh, I don't want to go forward, especially when we're talking about sin. They're going to think I'm a sinner. Well, guess what? We all know we're all sinners. No one's looking at you, pointing fingers at you, because the. It's like we said at the very beginning of the message. We said, until we understand the gravity of sin, we will never appreciate the value of forgiveness. Coming forward is just an opportunity for you to show that you understand the gravity of your sin. But I'll tell you what, you will appreciate walking out of here the value of forgiveness that the Lord offers to you. Because you don't have to walk away with any shame or any guilt for anything you've ever done. Imagine, Imagine that.